Gimme Shelter is supported by the James Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. May the course be with you. May the course be the with course. you. The yes. course? Like, like, like Star Wars. We're doing like Star Wars golf here. course. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. Golf course? Yeah. <laughs> Man, these are worse than I thought they were going to be. These I'm are sorry. worse these than are ours. Welcome, everyone, to Gimme Shelter, the California housing crisis podcast. I'm Manuela Tobias, housing reporter for Cal Matters. And I'm Liam Dillon, and I write about housing affordability for the Los Angeles Times. And today, Tuesday, April 12th, 2022, a little birdie told me we're teeing up to discuss something very interesting on this podcast. I see, yes, the first couple of buns of many that I'm sure we'll be doing. So yeah, we're going to be talking about golf courses, specifically the prospects of converting some of the more than 1,100 courses in California into new housing. We very much hope this episode is up to par. Mm. There's often (laughs) talk about how California might not have the space for new housing, especially in dense urban environments along the coast. A common retort is for these golf courses, the oceans of fairways, greens and sand frequently in the middle of our cities could instead be homes. So we're going to be going through the pros and cons of urban housing and urban golf on this episode. And as always, we have the perfect guest to talk about it. Who is it, Manuela? On this fort night. Oh, another <laughs> golf fun. Yes. We're with Assemblywoman Christina Garcia, a Democrat who represents Bell Gardens and other communities in Southeast Los Angeles. She kickstarted this golf conversation because she authored a bill that would provide funding to cities that would like to turn some of their publicly owned courses into housing developments. Some, let's say, interesting conversations in legislative committees have emerged, and we'll get into them later on. But first, we have what is surely the most exciting segment in all of California housing podcastry. Manuela, what is it? Yes, as I was saying, the avocado of the fortnight. Ah, (laughs) switching things up a little bit in this episode. But the avocado of the fortnight is our look at the most zany and strange occurrence in California housing in recent weeks. And we do have a zany one this time. We sure do. Liam, where does this one take us? It is to the small, wealthy Silicon Valley enclave of Portola Valley. This is sounding familiar. Small, wealthy Silicon Valley enclaves are Gimme Shelter's favorite stomping grounds this year. Mm-hmm. So what's mm-hmm. going on over there? Well, Manuela, there's been an absolute meltdown because of state housing laws. To be extremely brief, the state requires every city in California to plan for new housing every eight years. And the numbers this time around are very high everywhere. So some places are beginning to freak out. And I feel like I've said that line like 900 million times on this podcast. So if you want a very thorough discussion of what that all means and why, please check out our last episode where that's what we did. So just for Portola Valley, it's a uh, town of less than 5,000 people with a median household income of nearly $225,000. And there, the number of new homes planned or needed to be planned for is 253. I guess that's a lot. I suppose it is for Portola Valley because all sorts of stuff is happening. So per this story from late last month in the Almanac local newspaper, quote, a number of Portola Valley residents have been vocally opposed to any new development in town over concerns about sullying the town's rural character and increasing risk by building more homes in a region that is already at heightened risk for wildfires. So what's the avocado element here? 
There, while there are a few, a lawyer representing a Portolo Valley homeowner decided to paper the city in public records request. That lawyer, who happens to be former San Jose mayor Chuck Reed, actually, is requesting literally every document, including emails and text messages, that mention the housing element, which is the formal name for this process. That's ripish. Yeah, right, but that's not the ripest part. So that homeowner who might see his property rezoned for higher density in the city's housing plan allegedly approached Portola Valley's mayor at a public meeting and told him if the town were to rezone his property and the housing element is not to his liking, he and his neighbors intend to, quote, bankrupt the town with lawsuits. Wow, that's a lot. Yeah, well, and not only that, the homeowner also threatened to hire lobbyists, his own lobbyists, to urge the state housing department to reject the town's housing plan. My favorite quote from the story was the Portola Valley mayor, who summarized a threat from the homeowner, said the entire town would feel pain if you felt pain. I have to say, I, I do feel for this town. On the one hand, you have the state pressing you for a lot more housing. And then on the other, you have these very, very angry homeowners fighting against upzoning. This kind of shows the pressure that they're under. But it harks back to this idea, Liam, that you've talked about who shows up to city council meetings. And it's those, again, who have time and money to understand and then fight against these new rules. While average person with much more limited resources just doesn't. Indeed. And I think that that kind of explains what's happening pretty well here. I mean, the whole rigmarole has left Portola Valley Councilwoman Marianne Derwin, according to the story, pretty fed up. Derwin said in the piece that the content in committee meetings about the process is so rich, it could be a graduate level course in housing law. This is a committee that has met eight times since it formed last summer. Quote, Nobody is doing anything close to this in the county, Derwin said. Nobody has educated the community as thoroughly. No matter how much we do it, it is not enough. We're not doing what they want us to do, which is to fight the housing mandates. Derwin continued that nobody is going back to ask why this is happening. Quote, there's a historic housing and homelessness crisis. Where is the humanity? Derwin said. Something else that came up there was that this is a volunteer committee. Yes, 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 yes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that was definitely interesting. And I would sign up for that graduate level class. Before we leave Portola Valley, we should give a big shout out to Almanac reporter Angela Swartz, who not only brought us this story, but also was the one who broke the mountain lion story in Woodside. They attempted to exempt themselves from state housing duplex law by declaring mountain lion habitat. Angela is truly amazing. We thank her for all of her efforts at bringing avocados to us. Thank you, Angela. So on to the meat of the episode, golf courses. And really golf courses here are stand-in for lots of things. Namely, what we're talking about is this idea that we make choices, particularly in our constrained urban environments, about what we want to have and what we don't want to have. And more than that, what happens when you have something that has the very intense support of a small but vocal contingent and how that stacks up against the more abstract need for more housing? Well, let's try not to get too abstract here and get straight into golfing. Here you have a sport that's very popular, particularly though not exclusively among a very privileged few. And it just so happens that playing golf takes up a ton of space in urban areas. Yeah, you've been doing some research on this. So like, what, what are we talking about when you say a ton of space? So California has about 1,100 golf courses. Take note, this could come up in trivia. About 250 of which are publicly owned, about a quarter. And a lot of them are in our cities. 
Yeah, so this discussion allows me to bring up a really fun article that was in, published in City Lab from a couple of years ago. It was basically a back-of-the-envelope estimate from an architect in L.A. converting a publicly-owned golf course in the Cheviot Hills neighborhood of, of L.A. into a ton of housing. What did it say? So to zoom out first, essentially, L.A. operates the largest public golf system in the United States. Uh, there's about 2,300 acres of land occupied by courses within the county of L.A. alone. That is a lot. And the real estate locked up in the game is important here to emphasize because land values are part of what makes California's housing crisis so unique. The land single family homes sit on in LA is typically worth more than twice as much as the structures themselves. Wow, that's also quite a stat. So let me tell you a little bit about this sort of golf course in question. I used to live in the Palms neighborhood, which is right next door to Cheviot Hills. So on longer runs, I used to go by this Rancho Park golf course. What was that like? So I didn't really realize quite how big it was until I read the article, but it's 200 acres. And yeah, like right in the middle of everything. So it's close to Palms, which has a rail stop, close to another planned rail stop, close to Century City, which has a bunch of skyscrapers and is a job center. And how many people were golfing? So, you know, I would see some and occasionally hear a sort of swear word from someone whose shot didn't go too well. And although this never happened, I was always on the lookout so that an errant ball wouldn't strike me on the head while I was running down the street. So it sounds like it was decently crowded, but the middle of the city, not really compared to what it would be like if if there was housing there. Right. So that's exactly correct. So at least according to the figures provided in the article, the architect quoted in the story said he could probably fit 15,000 homes there, which could accommodate most of the 60,000 people tallied at the time who were said to be homeless in LA. The quote from the architect, this site is so huge, you could build a factory there, build units on site and crane them into place. Right. Homes for 50,000 people on this golf course. That is a lot of people in a lot of houses, right? in the center of things in LA. And here's where you start to get into the pushback. You know, people like golf. For the story, when this housing unit estimate was brought up to a member of the Rancho Park Club, he told the reporter his instant reaction was to present his middle finger and then suggested finding other solutions. Quote, I would use the course acreage as a last resort. I think there are other opportunities where they could find space. I'd also say that the land is worth so much that I just can't see it being used for affordable housing. I'd rather see them go higher density in different places. This is a really good segue to a story I wrote this week, Liam, about SB9, the bill to allow duplexes and split lots on single family homes across California to address exactly that and how dozens of cities have come up with pretty creative ordinances to actually limit that application of the law in their city, just like Woodside did a couple episodes ago. Okay, let's hear it. Temple City, which is in LA County, that was my favorite ordinance, said if you want to split your lot or build a second unit, you're going to need to demolish your existing parking structure. So like rip up the pavement where you park your car before you can get a building permit. And then we're not going to give any parking passes to new residents. So new tenants can't own cars. They have to bike or Uber around this L.A. suburb. There were a few other near impossible standards, but the intent was made pretty clear during a city council meeting. One council member said, quote, what we're trying to do here is mitigate the impact of what we believe is a ridiculous state law. Mm, Okay. And the reason is, to quote Temple City's mayor, quote, SB9 kind of treated us just like any other city. And unfortunately, we are a temple city. We're not just any other cities. To treat us like everybody else is really not workable. So the historic, famous temple city 
known for Temple City. <laughs> Single <laughs> Sorry, family I don't zoning. mean to rag on, I, I I don't mean to rag on Temple City, but I'll be honest, like I, I not a super memorable LA County place. Anyway. Uh, so yeah, like your point, I, I agree that it's a really good connection because, you know, everyone does think they're special, whether they're a city, everyone is known for one thing or another, though I'm not quite sure what Temple City is known for. And just like every other interest group too, like golfers, they think they're the exception for this generally agreed upon social good that, you know, at the end of the day, no one really wants in their backyard or their fairway. So why are you picking on golf, Liam? But it's not really just about golf. It's what I'm saying. Like we could say the same thing about tennis courts. You know, I'm sure would inboxes would then be filled with people wanting to mallet us with their rackets. The thing that I'm always struck by when I'm riding the train that goes from the west side of LA to downtown, they're like a zillion public storage spaces right next to the train tracks. Yep, storage for things, but not people, huh? I am sure, though, if there were proposals to move public storage to, you know, the hinterlands and build housing there instead, there'd be a ton of pushback from people who are fans of, you know, Garage Wars or whatever those public storage TV shows are called. The point here, as we've said, is everyone and everything has a vocal constituency. So let's go back to picking on golf. I am happy to. So, Manuela, I've been watching this bill from Christina Garcia about golf courses and housing. So before we get into kind of what's been happening with it, tell us what it would do. So the bill AB 1910 says cities can allow developers to build housing on public golf courses and get grant money from the state to do so, as long as a quarter of the new homes are affordable to the lowest earners. And 15% of the land must also be publicly accessible and not developed. But golf doesn't count. Okay, so what's her rationale for it besides just like we need housing? Like why public golf courses? That's what the golfers are asking. Essentially, cities, though, are spending a lot of money keeping a few of these courses afloat. One audit found two golf courses operated by the city of San Diego lost more than $2 million in 2014. And the city of San Jose in 2015 spent $2.6 million keeping three golf courses above water. There is another set of golf courses that actually make a lot of money. The point here is it's a really mixed bag. I see. But it does sound like a lot of money. And you said it's a mixed bag, but I mean a lot. <laughs> it's a lot that some courses are losing. Right. And most that are operated by cities are losing money. A recent study from Reason Foundation, a libertarian think tank, found that 24 of 27 local governments across California that were operating golf courses in 2020 lost $20 million worth of taxpayer money doing so. Wow. Okay. So one thing that I think really proves the point here in terms of what we've been talking about is that you told me you watched a hearing about this bill. What happened there? So that's how I learned about this bill. I showed up in person to the Assembly Housing Committee hearing a couple weeks ago just to experience it. And this bill was kind of the most exciting of the lot because of how many people were opposed. And it wasn't your usual tenant or landlord or other housing advocates, but impassioned golfers. What do you mean? So two people showed up in person to testify, repping SoCal and NorCal golf groups. Another golfer showed up to mark opposition and at least 10 people phoned in. So a pretty concerted effort among golfers to kill this thing. And then I looked up the opposition list because not everyone calls in and it runs two pages long. A couple that stood out to me were uh, California Golf and Travel Magazine and 
the Mickey Mouse Golf League also opposed this bill. So what was the feeling in the room like? Well, the room was pretty empty because of the COVID restrictions still. But I think it was like, okay, wow, this isn't just another usual housing bill. Golfers are really united and they really hate this. So what kind of arguments do they have? So the main one is already sort of joked about is why us? You're singling out golf when in fact it's only gotten more popular apparently during the pandemic. Bailey from the NorCal PGA said the bill quote, excommunicates golf from the park and recreations family, from which it has been a part of for more than 100 years. Excommunicates. That is, that's stunning. Okay. Fighting words. Keep going. He said, golf courses in urban areas are one of the very, very few green spaces left, and to turn those into hardscape runs contrary to environmental goals. Nikki Gatch from the SoCal PGA countered the narrative that only the rich play with some stats. She said that a third of California golfers are low income. I also said that a lot of women and people of color play golf and said municipal golf programs actually subsidized urban park budgets by tens of millions in multiple cities last year. Again, this idea that some golf courses actually are doing really well in terms of funding. So, you know, another thing that's really interesting to me about this is that the bill doesn't actually require the conversion of golf courses, but just kind of gives money to cities to consider converting their golf courses. But it sounds like golfers are taking this, this idea as like an existential threat. It almost did feel like all of the golf courses were about to be destroyed in California. Assemblymember Sharon Quirk. Silva said, and basically reread the summary of the bill because it seemed like people hadn't gotten that part about how this is optional, which I thought was funny. And the chair, Buffy Wick, said she didn't understand why local control groups were opposed since this gave them more of a say about whether they want to keep their golf courses or do something else with them. But the opposition in those terms wasn't that surprising to me because it's similar to the argument against Scott Wiener's SB10 last year in that it also gave cities the choice of whether they wanted to build more housing near transit. It didn't mandate that they do so, but I think opponents see it as a pretty slippery slope. Once you let the local government decide, they might just decide to do it. So you have to fight it from the top and and hope it doesn't get down at that point. Okay, so what do you think the fate of this bill is going to be? I think it's unlikely it'll get anywhere, Liam. Similar to another bill last year, the opposition is pretty steep. A couple of speakers apparently showed up to oppose a bill again in the next hearing, golfers in particular. But it was pulled from committee the day of, which tends to happen when there just aren't the votes to move it forward. But I guess we'll just wait and see. And then just to kind of sum up here and zoom out again more abstractly, what do you think this says about what we've been talking about? Like, do you think had this bill targeted tennis, we would have had the same kinds of arguments just from tennis aficionados? You know, I'm not sure. I play tennis myself, just throwing it out uh, there. Uh, <laughs> oh, so you're, so you're saying no, absolutely. We must save <laughs> not the tennis sure, courts. But no, I mean, tennis courts aren't as big as golf courses. But as we've discussed, every interest group has a constituency and they will show up to defend themselves if the state seems to be threatening their ability to play their sport. Okay, so with that, let's get to our interview with Christina Garcia. So we're here with Assemblywoman Christina Garcia. She's a Democrat who represents Bell Gardens and other communities in Southeast Los Angeles. Christina, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So 
I'm going to start off with, I'm sure is going to be the hardest question of our entire interview. And that is just point blank. Why do you hate golf? (laughs) I don't hate golf, but I do hate walking by a golf course or locally that's always fenced off and hardly ever in use. And I think about how it would be amazing if that fence came down and all I had was just a part that would be amazing too. I hate underused and underutilized and subsidized golf courses. And I want to reimagine what else they could be. So I guess more serious version of that. How do you balance the need for urban recreational spaces versus the need for housing? Let me start off with where I live. And I'm calling and talking to you today from the city of Bell Gardens. It's a really dense community where we're park poor, we're housed and housing insecure. And we have this golf where that the city subsidizes, taxpayers are subsidizing. And so as long as there's a fence and we have to pay to get in there, that's not open space for us. It's just a working class community. We're not using that golf course. So I always say that even if all you did was take down the fence and give us a park, that is a gift to the community. We want to see additional baseball fields and soccer fields and places to run around in. The parks that we do have are very heavily used in the community, but we need both. And so I think for myself, this bill is intended or the legislation I've been working on to have a discussion about the history of the golf courses in these communities, what purpose they served and do they still serve that purpose and finding that sweet spot. Can we have some new housing? Can we have some real additional open space? I think we can. So tell us some more about your district. How many golf courses are there? How does the golf course space compare to some of the needs that may exist for you know, other open space and for housing? So just within a seven mile radius of my house, I have about eight golf courses. In one of my neighboring cities, I have two golf courses that are both 18 holes, one mile apart from each other. And I would venture to say there's not that many local golfers. And for even the golfers that are coming in, I would venture to say that probably one of those golf courses at least is being subsidized by the taxpayers. We have a district where we need housing. I'm in Southern California. They're estimating that we need 1.3 million new homes in Southern California in the next years. There's kind of nowhere else to build when you have this much density. You either build on brownfields, and we are working to clean those up and try to build on that, both green space and housing. Or you look at spaces like golf courses that are so many acres that are fenced off as well. So your bill doesn't actually mandate the conversion of golf courses to housing. So were you surprised by the pushback? I am surprised by the pushback. My bill doesn't mandate anything. It literally just creates a grant program for communities to start to explore the possibility of conversion of those golf courses for communities where it makes sense. It's not targeting all golf courses, not targeting any golf course in particular, I think, It actually creates community involvement to have a discussion of how our taxpayers' tax dollars are being used. So I was very surprised. I've been really surprised by some of the discussions I've been having. I've been really surprised by some wealthy individuals telling me that golf courses in my community are some of the most affordable, and that's why they come out to this side of town. But they're really affordable because working-class communities are subsidizing them for their hobby and their sport. And they don't have a problem with that. And I think in a time of equity and a time of trying to make sure that we're all moving forward, I think they should reassess that. But I'm sure you were well aware, though, that like golf has, like many other pursuits, has some very intense like supporters. I assume you've been hearing from folks like, why are you picking on like golf? Is that some of the reaction that you've been getting? Yes, I definitely have heard. Why are you picking on golf? Why not baseball? Why not soccer fields? 
why not tennis? So I definitely hear that all the time. I will say that most golf courses could be 2,000 tennis courts or 43 baseball fields or 91 football fields. And in communities like mine, the soccer fields, the baseball fields are very, very used but I hardly ever see anyone at my local golf course. And I walk by there regularly with my dogs and I stare at my tax dollars, you know, just sitting there and not providing any benefit to most community members. Is sort of your answer to that question, like why golf? Are you saying basically it's kind of such a large amount of space that is infrequently compared to some of the other recreational uses? I would say not why golf, but why golf in communities like mine? And in a community like mine, where we're not using that golf course, and we are paying lots of tax dollars for that, maybe we should reimagine its purpose when we have so many other needs in this community, whether it's housing, whether it's open space, whether it's that additional soccer field that the community keeps asking for. And so it's not just any golf course, it's golf courses and communities like the one that I live in. And can they serve a better purpose? Can our tax dollars serve a better purpose? You mentioned some of these conversations that you've been having. How would you summarize some of the opposition? One argument that uh, we read about is the Trust for Public Land said that they're worried that this bill would allow developers to monetize property without taking into account what the community wants and cited an example of a golf course in Orange County where they claimed their city was rushing to build a water park and market rate housing. So how do you respond to some of that pushback, this is actually taking away public land, some hold dear and actually letting developers profit from it. Well, I think the bill and my goal is actually the opposite. My goal is to create a community-led process where community members are leading the discussion and deciding what's the best use for that piece of land. And they might decide that a golf course is the best use for that piece of land. And if so, so be it. They have to do nothing. This bill doesn't mandate any sort of a change, but it does create a fund so that if communities want to engage in that discussion, if cities want to engage in that discussion, if cities want to engage in the planning with the community, they could apply for grants to pay for that process. So I want to zoom out a little bit here and talk broadly speaking, do you think California or more specifically LA, do you think we can solve our housing problems here without a massive shift in the amount of land or the kind of land that's set aside for housing like if we're not talking about golf courses, then does it have to be some other sort of big land use change to ensure that, you know, enough housing and enough affordable housing gets built for those who may need it? Well, let me say this. Whatever we are doing or not doing is not working. When we have a state auditor telling us that 1.4 million low-income Californian households aren't unable to access affordable housing and that we need to create at least half a million low-income households in Southern California quickly, to give people relief, what we are doing is not working. And I think it's specific. Southern California's diverse and communities are different. But when you're looking at Southern California and Southeast LA, it's one of the densest areas in LA County and the state. There's not much of anything left. Either you clean up a contaminated, toxic lens, brownfields, or you start to look at spaces like golf courses that take up so much acreage that people are not using to reconsider it. I think in other communities, there might be other spaces that are underused and they should be considering that as well. It just happens to be that where I'm at, one of the only places left to consider are golf courses. We have done the granny unit. We have subdivided the lots. We have built up all these policies that we've been legislating at the Capitol. We've done it in communities like mine. It's why this is one of the densest communities out there. And so if we do only what's being prescribed to date, 
this crisis is only going to get worse. I want to push on that a little more because I don't think people even in LA or certainly not in California and definitely not across the country, like really understand the density of some of the communities that are in your districts and particularly because there's not like there's skyscrapers. You look at the data and like nationally, some of the communities that you represent are among the most people per square mile of any, literally anywhere in the country. And the same with issues like housing overcrowding and things like that. Can you sort of speak more and help people who may not understand the density and, and environment in Southeast LA when it comes to housing, like what it actually is like? It's very common to have two families living in an apartment here in Southeast LA. It's very common to have multiple families living in a house here in Southeast LA. This is a working class community who oftentimes is living below the poverty line. And so to make do, you have these families coming together. We do not have big skyscrapers. Like you said, this was built as a neighborhood community or downtown LA, you will have lots that were maybe thought of for single homes where you have a home that's been subdivided and you have multiple apartments in the background as well. It's a community that also is choked by six freeways. It's a community that has a lot of toxics. It's one of the most polluted communities also in the state, not just in Southern California. I'll give you an example. The city of Bell Gardens is two square miles, about 45,000 people in two square miles. So a lot of money is needed for low-income housing in general in the state. Why should your golf course conversion bill get some of that money as opposed to just putting that money toward building affordable housing in general, do you think? Well, we have been putting lots of money at the state level. Uh, we put billions of dollars in the 10 years I've been at the Capitol and it hasn't produced the housing and there's been a lot of issues that are slowing down. Most of the housing that we've seen built in Southern California has been expensive and I think for communities like mine, where it's a working class community, where we only get seven pennies to the dollar of property taxes, when we got incorporated, that was the deal we made with the county of LA. They got to keep all the property taxes except for seven pennies for every dollar, where we no longer have redevelopment, where there's not big industries. This, these were, again, bedroom communities. So it's not like you're going to have these big industries that are producing a lot of tax revenue. If the state does not intervene to help them look and get creative and look at places like golf courses, we're not going to be building. It doesn't pencil out for us and we don't have the dollars out there. There's a lot of tension at the state level over the past few years and all these new pieces of legislation that have made it easier to add second units or do garage conversions or things like that. But these are things that have happened, you know, both formally and also informally for decades. Can you talk more about what garage conversions and second unit conversions and, and how prevalent those are and how used they are throughout the neighborhoods you represent? I'm 45 and I've lived in Bell Gardens since I grew up and I lived here most of my life. And so I will tell you that it's no any different now than it was back when I was a kid. And so it's very normal. I'll give you an example of where I live. I live in a house that when I purchased it was already subdivided. It's a three bedroom house that has been turned into two apartments. And behind me, I have five apartments. Initially, this was supposed to be a single family home with the big backyard. And it's every single property you see here is that's the norm. Seeing a house where it's just a house by itself, that's rare in a city like Bell Gardens. And they do exist, but they're far and few in between. And I could probably point them out on a quick drive in like 10 minutes. <laughs> and so people have gotten creative in 2007 when the market fell is when you started seeing many more families moving in together. And while the economy picked up, slowest in communities like this. And so they haven't felt all that uptick. The pandemic showed up. 
And so these families continue to live together. Two families in a one bedroom is also very common. I have two bedrooms and my neighbors are always trying to rent out my one bedroom. They're like, you have this unused bedroom. Like, that's crazy. Give it to me. (laughs) And so it's very common out here where, you know, it's an immigrant community and it's very common to have I say we might be poor in money, but we are rich in community and we help each other out with whatever we have. And sometimes helping each other out is by giving each other shelter in our home and it might get a little more crowded, but we're going to give each other shelter. If that's what we can share, then we share that. So these bills that were coming through to sort of make more legal ADUs and casitas and things like that were coming to the legislature. You voted on many of these over the past few years. When they were coming through, what was your reaction to some of the discussions and arguments that were, you know, happening because of the familiarity that you've already had with these kinds of units? You know, for me, some of the criticism or some of the fears of what might be happening to communities to be allowed some of these policies to happen or like, yeah, that does happen. We do start to have some parking issues. So how about we plan accordingly? And if we're going to allow these ADUs to happen, how do we also figure out parking in the communities? And so for me, it's not about this means we can't do it, but how do we learn lessons to do it better? And then what I say is like, it's not fair. So low-income communities keep trying to figure out how to get creative and have more housing and we get more and more crowded and our density gets worse and worse and wealthier communities do nothing which just pushes everyone else out also. And it makes the market that much harder to find affordable housing. It's also why we see gentrification eventually showing up to communities like mine. And so I think part of the fact that we've already been doing all these things and I was like, yeah, it's feasible. And here are some lessons learned for you. It's also unfair that we keep having to bear the burden of the density issues of the housing issues, whether it's in subdividing, whether it's in converting garages, or whether eventually becomes where people come and say, hey, this is the next spot we're going to gentrify. And people are starting to look at Southeast LA as the next place to gentrify. We look at like different investment magazines or real estate magazines. They're talking about this side of town as the next place to start looking at as the next place. And they don't call it gentrification, obviously. They talk about the next place moving on up, but moving on up means pushing us on out. Let me ask too, I'm curious during those debates about the ADU laws, you know, you'd hear a lot, and I guess this, to a certain extent with SB9, the end of the single family zoning law, you'd hear a lot from, you know, wealthier, very lower dense communities talking about how this is going to ruin their neighborhoods or ruin communities. You know, what was your reaction when you were hearing those sorts of arguments? We all have a shared responsibility to deal with these issues and we should all be carrying our fair share of the problem. And that might come with changes to your communities. But if you don't change, then you let all the burden fall on communities like mine. And it doesn't feel very equitable. And it feels, I always say, communities like mine become the sacrifice zone for everyone else's progress. And if we are in 2022 and equity has become our favorite word out there, then I'm just saying, let's, let's, I'm going to hold you accountable to that. And let's put some action behind those words out there. And I think what I find the most interesting, let me be clear, my district's not all low income. I have communities that are mostly single family homes, you know, half a million people is a lot. As you travel south and east in my district, you start to see a little bit more of that. And those parents always tell me that their children cannot afford a house in the community they grew up with. And they're really upset about that. And I tell them, well, part of the solution is building more housing, but you don't want it. You're out there complaining about it, but that's The only way we can meet your demands as population is growing. We are living longer and that's a good thing for you. And you get to spend more time with your grandkids. But that means that's a house that's not vacating for your kids. And so the only way is to build another house for them. Wondering along those same lines, what do you make of some of the pushback from cities even after something like SB9 
passed, you still have locals coming up with ordinances that very much curb the amount that homeowners can build. These bills get passed into law, but then there's still a lot of resistance. What do you think that it's going to take for that change to to actually materialize? I think enforcement. We pass laws and then are they being implemented? Do we have enforcement? We don't always look into that. I've been there long enough that I start to look at laws I've passed and I'm like, are they working? Are they being implemented? Who do I need to talk to to make sure that they're being implemented? And so we need enforcement. I know that our attorney general is talking about a task force to make sure that cities are following the law. And it takes political will to follow through with that. And so I do hope for the sake of the next generation, we find that political will. The next generation is having a hard time, not just buying a house, but renting a house. And you have young adults who are forced to live at home with their parents and are finding it impossible to find their American dream here in California. And so we need to have the political will. I'm excited to hear the AG talk about enforcement, and I hope he's aggressive and he follows through across the board to make sure that these laws are being implemented. I had a city here who was fighting on permitting ADUs after we passed the ADU law, and I had a number of homeowners call me frustrated about the issue, and I had staff look into it. They were breaking the law. We wrote them a letter that did not motivate them. And then I had to call the attorney general and the attorney general picked up the phone and then finally permits started to roll. And I'm happy that the permit started to roll. I wish it didn't come to that. Those council members are really angry with me still. And it's frustrating that it's like, I don't know why you're angry with me when I'm just asking you to follow the law (laughs) and allow property owners and homeowners to do what they want to do with their property out there. And so you lose friends. Along the way, politics is a team sport. And I think everyone's thinking about that always. But I didn't get into into this to kind of do it like everyone else. I got into this to push for change. So you're not here to make friends is what you're saying. Well, you need friends, so I can't fully isolate myself. But if on occasion I need to push some folks and upset some of my friends and tell them no, we need to have the courage to do that. Along the lines of political willpower, it seems like there's a pretty uphill push to move this particular proposal forward. Similar previous version of this bill you introduced was held in appropriations last year. You canceled a hearing on this in local government committee recently. What are the chances for passage looking like right now? So I am dumbfounded by the opposition. This doesn't mandate anything. This doesn't even allocate the dollars to begin with. There still needs to be a budget appropriation This has pushed an important discussion forward and it continues to push forward. I am talking to committee members of ways that they want to maybe narrow the bill. And I told them I'm open to that, but I'm not going to negotiate against myself. How do you want to do that? And ironically, I was talking to a member and they told me, we think you should narrow it to just communities like yours. I was like, I'm open to that. And we started talking about it and it's like, oh, that sounds pretty racist. I was like, but that's just what you recommended. So we could do that and we could have that discussion in committee if you want. Like, <laughs> So if you just told me that, why are you afraid to vote for this bill? Why should my community continue to subsidize the five people from your side of town that are coming out here to use the golf course when we have so many other needs? To me, it just seems really unjust out there. Communities that do not have the means to be able to pay to engage in that community discussion about that space. And anecdotally, I've been here all my life, basically. Community members are always saying, why can't we take down that fence and put some soccer fields there? Like, that's the most asked for item here in my community. 
I know the community members have spoken to the council members about this. And sometimes you just get used to doing things the same way always, even if it makes no sense. This bill has pushed more community members to reach out to our council members to say, hey, figure out where we could get some grant money to start to have this discussion. Uh, There must be someone that can help us with this. (laughs) But I'm going to work hard to get this through local government and appropriations. And so I'm looking to see what amendments committee members want. But when I talked to the chair, she said someone from her community reached out to her, a woman who was an avid golfer and was really upset about the bill. She said, have you read the bill? Your golf course is not under threat. This bill is not taking anything away. (laughs) This bill is just saying that we should allow communities to think about how best to use their space if they have a space that isn't being used. So last tough, tough question. What's your handicap? <laughs> I had no clue. Uh, you know, when I was in... I had to ask I, him what this meant. So <laughs> when I was in high school, I will say you know, I was not in sports. And so I had to take regular PE all four years of high school. And for a week, they taught us how to golf out on the football field. And I think that whole week, the football coach was having a heart attack because we were doing a really good job of tearing up that field. (laughs) That's the only time I have picked up a golf course. I'm afraid to hit myself. I'm really clumsy. (laughs) And I'm okay with everyone that got wants to golf. I just don't think that in this really dense urban community, I need this many golf courses. I feel like we could repurpose them and we could keep some and there's a happy medium here. And it doesn't have to be an all or nothing like people have been pushing this to be. But since he asked me that question, I do have some great puns that my staff pulled oh, together. We yes, want me to great, give you yes. a couple. Please. Yes, yes, please unleash right. the golfing puns. Yes. <laughs> all right. And so we hope to get this bill through committee before May gets here. So putter late than ever. Okay. okay. Yeah, no. Uh, right. See? Yeah. Okay. We're enjoying a beautiful, a beautiful tea full day. Oh, tea. Thank God I didn't write these. <laughs> 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 All right. Don't blame me. I'm sorry. Okay. Don't blame me. I'm just a messenger. <laughs> Today was a hole in one. Okay. All right. <laughs> Good. Um, we're, we are ready to part tea. <laughs> The delivery also kills me. <laughs> yes. Okay. I blame my ESL ways for that. <laughs> so I don't use cliches and I don't do puns like this because I always mess them up because I'm a Spanish speaker to begin with. <laughs> and then I have to stop and think about these for a minute to be like, oh yeah, no. <laughs> but anyways, but I could always make fun of myself and laugh at myself. This was an amazing interlude. Thank you. I um, love that. So we was there anything else, Christina, that you want to, maybe not any more puns, but aside from that, um, that you want to impart to our, our very vast and influential uh, audience? Look, change is hard. And we have placed a certain status symbol on golf courses. And I think the opposition that I often hear revolves around that status of golf courses. But if we don't get creative and maybe it's not golf courses, you know, maybe it's something else. But if we don't get creative, if we do not have that political will, the crisis is only going to get worse. That should be really scary for all of us. It's only a matter of time before these moratoriums are lifted, before we stop delaying student loans. There's a lot of different things that are putting pressure on individuals to be able to afford their housing and be able to do everything else that they should be able 
to do. There's, I think, a lot of things in this near future that are going to be coming to head out there and that discussion about our quality of life and what have I worked so hard for if I can't reach that American dream. Uh, it's going to be really painful for a lot of people, including my elected peers who are afraid, who don't have that political will. Sooner or later, the public and the voters are going to speak up through the ballot box. And I think for community members who are saying things never change, why should I get involved? This is the time to get involved because if you don't do it now, your future is at risk, in all honesty. So take action, if even if it's not around golf courses, but I think you need to take action to push my peers here and across the U.S. to have the political will to do it different. The status quo has not been working. Thanks for your time, Christina. We appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, as always, for listening. If you like us, please rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts and other your other favorite podcast services. Again, this is really important so that new people can discover us and maybe we'll have some uh, golf fans giving us probably poor ratings. Um, so <laughs> our editor, as always, for Give Me Shelter is Victor Figueroa. Victor, we appreciate you. My name is Liam. I work for the LA Times and you can find me on Twitter at Dylan Liam. And I'm Manuela Tobias from Cal Matters, and my Twitter handle is at Manuela Tobias M. Thank you all for listening. Thank you.